Welcome to the February episode of OMP Rising, an original podcast series produced by the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists. I'm Samira Price, a research orthotist prosthetist at the Henry M. Jackson Foundation for the Advancement of Military Medicine in San Antonio, Texas, and an emerging OMP clinician. With me today is Phil Stevens, Master of Education, Certified Prosthetist Orthotist, and Academy Fellow. Phil is the Director of Clinical and Scientific Affairs at Hanger Clinic and an upper limb prosthetic specialist, where he develops evidence-based clinical programs to help patients improve their orthotic and prosthetic outcomes. Phil was president of the Academy from 2014 to 2015. He is an active member of the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics Editorial Board. Phil holds adjunct faculty positions within the University of Utah's Division of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and the Prosthetic and Orthotics Program at Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Autobach. Welcome to the podcast, Bill. Thank you. Nice to be with you today. I'm excited to have you join me today to discuss the ever-important topic of the presentation process and how to make the most of your time on stage. As healthcare professionals, we often discover new methodologies either through participation in research studies or by direct patient care, and being able to effectively share that knowledge with our colleagues is essential. There is an art to ensuring that the knowledge transfer occurs from the presenter to those in the audience. So I want to start out by asking you, how do you go about building a presentation? Because when you're staring at that blank PowerPoint, it can be really intimidating. So how do you get started? That's a fun way to kick off this conversation. And I, I love that you use the word art when you introduce the question, that there's an art to what we do. Because there is. And, and even though a lot of what we report on is scientific in nature and, and leans on data and has a heavy science element, at the end of the day, when, when you do this right, when you do this well, you're a storyteller. My middle son and I, we have a storytelling event that we go to uh, every fall, have gone to for the last decade. And, and we love going to the Timpanoga Storytelling Festival. And and uh, there's something about the story that's just so compelling. We love to sit back and listen to happy stories, sad stories, silly stories, serious stories. But when we're presenting, we're telling stories. And so, you know, how do I go about building a presentation? I'm trying to find the story. Where is the story in the data that I'm trying to share? It, by the way, it's the same process that I go through if I'm sitting down to write a magazine article or if I'm sitting down to write a peer-reviewed publication. I'm looking at the data and I'm saying, where's the story? Because that story is what pulls us in. And it can be a happy story. It can be a sad story. Maybe we found the relationship we're looking for. Maybe we didn't. But there's still a story there to tell. How do I go about building a presentation? I, I look for the story. Now, as we look for that story, we have to remember, we don't want to be indulgent and tell the story that, uh, that we want to hear. We want to tell the story that's going to engage the audience. So that's a trap we can sometimes fall into. We need to think of things from the perspective of the audience. What do they need to hear for the story to make sense to them uh, and tell the story that they need to hear as opposed to the story that maybe uh, is captivating to us as someone who's been in this data, been in that process and knows all the sidebar elements and considerations. The other thing you always need to, I, I call it the Kool-Aid principle. You have to keep the Kool-Aid principle in mind. So we all remember making Kool-Aid in our youth. And uh, you got to be careful that you add enough water without adding too much water. And so the Kool-Aid principle plays into this. You have your core elements that you're going to try and get across to your audience. And, and usually you've got two, three, maybe four things that you want to get across. 
well, you've got to have some water in there. You've got to have some anecdote. You've got to have some little bit of story to lighten that content, but you don't want to have too much. So you don't want to water your presentation down with too much detail, but you also need to have more than just those essential elements to make it something that's somewhat engaging. So, uh, you know, you've, you've got your Kool-Aid packet. You need to add some water. Don't add too much. Don't throw too much in there that's not relevant to the uh, core principles that you're trying to relate that day. Thank you, Phil. I really like what you said about being a storyteller and making sure that you tell the story that the audience wants to hear and not necessarily the story that you want to tell. I think that's really helpful. And what I want to know next is how does that story change based on the content or how does your presentation style change depending on whether or not you're presenting a case study or research data, for example? I don't know that it changes that much for me. I think I follow the same process for either one. You know, in both situations, I'm looking for that story. I'm looking for that story that my audience can relate to, that my audience will value. But I guess importantly, what I would say that is that in both situations, we're at a point in our maturation as a field that whether we're doing a case study or whether we're presenting research data, we can inject quantifiable content. Okay, so 20 years ago, we could probably get away with a case study that, that's just a story that just talks about this patient that you treated this way and they did well, they did great. We've matured out of that now. So today, if we're sharing a case study, that case study should be supported with data. We're living in an era of outcomes. We're living in an area where we have a pretty good evidence base. And so if I'm sharing a case study, I'm going to look for the quantifiable elements of outcomes and prior research that I can buttress against that specific case study, right? So if I'm presenting research data, I have data, and that is a scientific presentation. I guess what I'm saying is the case studies also need to be scientific in nature these days. I think it's reasonable for your audience to expect that if you're going to share what you did, you'll share before and after outcomes. You'll share that longitudinal outcome set that shows the progress and the development uh, associated with the care that you provided. I think it's reasonable for your audience to expect you to cite some evidence, some literature, some prior publication relative to that patient population or that intervention. Even though I just got done talking about how important it is to tell a story, in these sorts of academic settings and scientific settings, those stories need to be supported through a combination of outcomes and uh, prior literature. Thank you. I think that's definitely a reasonable expectation in this day and age. Uh, what would you say are the most challenging presentations to give? <laughs> That's a fun question. Well, I, you know what? I'm going through something right now. I can maybe share it that way. I had the opportunity to give a, a two-hour presentation earlier this week for a group of adjusters and case managers. And there's a certain challenge associated with aggregating enough content to fill that much time and, and to stay engaging over that long of a time. So that, that represents one sort of challenge. But in a couple of weeks, I've, I've got another talk that I'll be giving where I only have 20 minutes and I have 20 minutes to share in front of about whatever that number will be, 800, 1,000 people. Um, I think sometimes the shorter time periods are actually more challenging. Even though it can be challenging to engage an audience for a longer period of time, it's also very difficult or requires a lot of thought and preparation to take all of these thoughts, all of these experiences, uh, all of these points that you want to make and do so efficiently when your time is very constrained. Uh, so I think that's one challenging environment that we confront. Another consideration, though, is audience, right? It's, it's a lot easier, I think, to speak to our peers. 
it, it's easier to speak to other prosthetists and other orthotists that understand we have that common background so we can start from the same starting point. I, I think it's more difficult to require some additional thought when you're presenting to a different group. That can be a group that lacks background in your field. And so you have to kind of back up a little bit and bring them along. Or that can be from a group that understands your field, but only from a certain vantage point. And so it's one thing to speak to a room full of prosthetists. It's another thing to speak at the American Diabetic Association meeting or at a vascular society meeting uh, where they're aware of what we do, but their perception of what we do is going to be somewhat biased by the patients that they're used to seeing. So I think audience is also a big consideration when you talk about the relative difficulty of a given speaking assignment. Certainly. And whether you're presenting in a 20-minute slot or a two-hour slot, how do you ensure that you cover all of the necessary points, especially without bringing up notes, which we all know is a bad idea? <laughs> um, okay. That's a great question. I, it starts with this idea of stewardship. Some organization, some academy, some society has decided to give you 20 minutes of their time. And when we say their time, that there might be 20 people in the room, there might be 200 people in the room. But I think it's important to respect that there's a lot of trust that goes into that. And there's reasonable expectation associated with that. So if they're going to entrust you with that time, if they're going to entrust you with that opportunity, you really do have an obligation to uh, be fully prepared for that opportunity. So how do I ensure that I cover all the necessary points? Well, <laughs> the talk that I'll give that day, I've heard it several times when I gave it to myself. So even though, you know, in preparation for this podcast, I pulled out my CV and looked just because I thought it might come up, but I I've given over a hundred presentations at, at state and national and international presentations around the world. And yet the process doesn't change, meaning before I give that presentation, I will practice it. As much as I've done it, I will practice it. And my family understands that when dad goes in the bedroom and shuts the door, when dad goes in the den and shuts the door uh, and he starts talking to himself, that's normal. That's okay. He does that from time to time. And so I do. I practice those presentations. I, I, I want to make sure that I'm honoring the time that they've given me. I think it's very disrespectful to go over the time that the organization has allotted to you. So I, I give that talk so I can time myself and make sure that I'm honoring that commitment. But I also give that talk so that when the time comes for me to give it in front of that group, I know that all the salient points have been covered. So I guess I'll go back to what I said earlier. When I give a talk in, in that setting, I've given that talk several times in a quiet setting to myself. Uh, so there's no surprises there. I know what's going to come out. I will say this. One of my pet peeves professionally is that speaker who comes into the session and obviously isn't prepared, right? We've, we've seen that presenter come in and it's pretty evident within a couple minutes uh, that they wrote their presentation uh, on the airplane on the way over. Um, they may start their presentation off with an apology. Uh, invariably, that apology talks about how busy they've been. That doesn't really cut it, right? If you're going to ask that group of 100 people or 200 people for 20 minutes of their time, if you do the math, you owe that group a couple hours of preparation, right? You're going to be asking for maybe 40 hours of their collective time over the next 20 minutes. So you owe that group the courtesy of preparing. And I, I think we do our audiences a disservice. We do our field a disservice if we show up in, in that type of setting, in that type of environment without having executed the proper preparation. I really like what you said about honoring and respecting the opportunity to be on stage. And I agree that it is really important to be prepared in that way. 
you mentioned that you practice your presentations a lot. Do you think that's the number one tip to overcoming anxiety on stage is just practicing and being prepared? Or do you have any other suggestions for overcoming maybe stage fright? I think, and boy, we can speak to both extremes. So in the home I grew up in, in the faith tradition I grew up in, the, the first time I stood up and gave a talk or a presentation, I guess, in front of my peers, I was probably nine years old, 10 years old. You know, the first time I stood up and spoke in front of a group of adults, probably 12 years old. So I don't really remember a time when I wasn't speaking in front of people. And, and um, I suppose I have my parents and my upbringing to, uh, to thank for that. But that's not to say that anxiety isn't a part of the process. That's not to say that I don't get a little anxious before talks still today. We should. We should be a little anxious. We should feel the burden of, of taking the time of all the people that are gathered to hear what we have to say and making sure that we do so well. But the other consideration, uh, I think, in our field is that we do have a, a bit of a minor league structure, if you will. You don't have to give your first presentation in the majors. We have state and chapter meetings. Uh, we do a lot of in-servicing, right, where we'll go in and we'll do lunchtime in-services for referral sources, for example. So we can build our confidence in some of those more controlled settings, some of those smaller settings. And as we build up our confidence, we can then move towards the bigger opportunities like national meetings. And, uh, and if the opportunity allows, maybe international meetings. So I think there is value in uh, progressively increasing the scope of the opportunities that you have to to speak and share and present. I like that. And I, I like what you said about building confidence. I know a lot of students and young professionals, they tend to have more experience with poster presentations. And I think that that transition from a poster to your first big podium presentation can be a little bit intimidating. Would you, again, just recommend starting at a, a smaller meeting before you move to a national stage? It, that's ideal if you can pull it off. So sometimes we can't dictate the opportunity. And when the opportunity comes up, usually the answer is yes, right? Usually if you get an opportunity to go speak, you, you want to accept that opportunity and then grow into that opportunity. But you don't need to give that presentation for the first time in that venue, right? We all have peers that maybe we went to school with. We have peers that we work with. And so if you're looking down the barrel of something that looks a little onerous or overwhelming, pull together a smaller session where you can practice. And, and I've certainly done this before. I've asked my colleagues here locally if I can give a presentation over the lunch hour. And I'll share the presentation with them and say, how did that go? What did I miss? What questions do you have? You can build your confidence in some of those smaller sessions. You know, do a Zoom call with some of your classmates. Do a lunchtime in-service with your coworkers. Go through that material in a friendly environment. Build up that confidence before you go to the big setting, right? That's what the comedians do. The, the big Netflix specials, when you listen to those guys talk about how they develop that, they'll tell you it takes them a year because they go to the small comedy clubs, they try out the new material. As they feel like they've got it figured out, they'll go to slightly larger venues. They're not shooting that next Netflix special until they've tried that material out in a more controlled environment and they know it's going to go over well. So we can kind of follow that same progression of presenting in some friendlier environments before we go to the big dance. I think that's a great idea. And that's something that I like to do when I'm preparing for presentations as well. For me, it's helpful to give a presentation in those more friendly settings so that one, you can work out any kinks and two, it helps me figure out what types of questions to anticipate from the audience. Because sometimes that's the uncontrolled part and you don't know what people are going to ask you. 
We'd like to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, Autobot. Grow into the cranial orthoses market with Microband. The innovative, customized, low-profile design makes the Microband a unique alternative to dated foam helmets. Each band is uniquely designed using an objective 3D model of a child's exact cranial structure and state-of-the-art 3D printing technology. With precise scanning and fitting procedures, your patient's band is perfectly configured with no time wasted for foam modifications. Be the best treatment provider with the smartest cranial remolding orthosis on the market. And that leads us to our next question is, how do you handle questions from the audience if the research you share can't necessarily back up the answer to that question or if you don't know the answer? I have found that I don't know is a great answer to a tough question. I'm more comfortable looking at that individual and giving that candid response of I don't know or I didn't think of that or we haven't considered that. I'd much rather give that honest answer than try and make something up on the spot, right? Or, or try and talk my way out of it or talk my way around of it. In all my experience at the meetings and presentations over the years, the answer of I don't know is, is perfectly acceptable. Thank you for saying that. I think a lot of times it's scary to say I don't know or maybe it makes it seem like you're unprepared, but it's nice to know that that's an acceptable answer. Another question about dealing with the audience, have you ever dealt with an argumentative audience member and, and how would you recommend going about that? I suppose I've been fortunate. I cannot think of a time when I was at the podium and had an argumentative uh, exchange from the floor. I have seen it happen a few times over the years. I think, you know, this is, this is a good opportunity for me to plug the value of having a good moderator. If you ever get asked to moderate a session, in my humble opinion, you have a couple primary responsibilities. Your first responsibility is to keep that session on time. If you've got a speaker who's going long, you pull him or her down. We're off topic, but we're going to stay off topic. If you're asked to moderate, the first thing you want to do is pull your speakers together and look them in the eye and say, I will cut you off, right? You have a 10-minute speaking slot, and I will cut you off at 10 minutes. I have found that if you give them that warning ahead of time, you probably won't have to cut them off. And when you do, they saw it coming. So that's your first responsibility is to make sure that things are on time. But your second responsibility is to protect your speaker or your speakers. And so to any future moderators, you know, if you see that heated exchange starting to develop where maybe there's someone in the audience who doesn't appreciate the way a given investigator approached a certain problem, recognize that there's no value to having that conversation in front of that room full of people. So you can stop the questioner, uh, you can summarize the concerns, and you can say, uh, we're now going to move on to our next question, right? That really falls to the moderator, and, and the moderator does so much more than just, uh, you know, read the bio of the speaker. They, they need to be looking out for those types of issues. And while they're rare, when they do occur, it's the responsibility of that moderator to pull that back in and make sure things don't get out of control. Thank you. It's nice to know that you should have that extra person watching your back when you're up there on stage. And circling back to the presentation itself, how do you ensure that your audience understands the information and, and how do you keep them engaged with that story that you were telling me about at the beginning? That's a really good question. First of all, it falls back to what we've talked about before, right? So you're giving these presentations in small, friendly environments first. So I cut my teeth in a place, Sierra, where you cut your teeth in, in Houston, Texas. I was in, uh, the practice was dynamic orthotics at the time. 
But before I gave that presentation at the Texas chapter meeting, and, and I think I later gave that same presentation at a national meeting, but before I did that, I gave it at a staff meeting. And uh, I gave it at a staff meeting, and I'm asking those guys, did they follow it? Or they're telling me, I lost you here. You should have a pretty good feel for whether or not your audience is able to follow your story as you share it in those smaller, friendlier environments. Uh, then on the day of the show, uh, you do have to watch your audience, and you're watching for all of those uh, nonverbal communications, right? You're, you're watching for people that are pulling out their phones. You're watching for heads that might be rolling back. You're watching to see if audience members might be slipping out the back. Some of that's going to occur. And I suppose there's a meaningful conversation to be had about watching for those clues and recognizing that you may need to, you know, look internally. Do I need to move? <laughs> Do I need to inflect my voice a little bit? Do I need to hit some of these points and, and give this presentation a little bit of a rhythm so that it's easier for someone to sit through. So there might be some things that you can do to help bring them back in. But the other thing I would say is that, you know, let's let's uh, give the audience a little bit of grace. We don't know what they're dealing with. So you're going to have people slip out the back. You're going to have people pull out their phones. They're all medical professionals that have phones on them for a reason. And uh, they have emergencies that go on for a reason. So, you know, if you have somebody slip out the back, if you have someone pull out their phone, don't take it personally. Probably has very little to do with you and what you're trying to present. It's the nature of, of uh, the world that we live in. Okay. So when you see those types of verbal cues happening that might indicate the audience is not as engaged, how do you know when it's just people dealing with what they need to deal with and when you maybe need to pivot or change something that you're doing on stage? I think that probably comes with experience. Over time, you know what it takes to be an engaging speaker. You know when you're being engaging and you realize when you're not. You realize when you're being a little bit flat. If you've practiced this presentation a number of times, you can get to the point where you're just going through the motions. And if you start to see heads rolls or eye rolls or heads nodding back, you can do that internal check. Am I just going through the motions or am I presenting in an engaging way? Right? Would I want to watch myself talk right now? And if the answer is no, then you need to do something about it inflection to your voice, uh, maybe inject an anecdote about uh, what you're talking about. Yeah, sometimes you have to make a, a subtle pivot. Thank you. Another question I have is, how important is it to present or at a minimum attend professional meetings at any stage of your career? I think it's important to recognize that attending these types of meetings is one way that we can ensure that we're doing our very best for the patient that we're going to see next week or next year, as the case may be. I've had the pleasure of practicing all over the country. I've practiced in big cities. I've practiced in smaller towns. And one of the reasons that I, I chose Salt Lake City with a major medical center and a medical school is that I, I like the feel of healthcare in an environment that's conducive to ongoing education, right? I like to practice in an environment where residents are constantly asking the physician, why did you do that? And the physician has to have a better answer than, well, that's how they trained me to do it back in 1982. What I've found in small town practices is that sometimes, whether we're talking about prosthetists or surgeons or therapists, people fall into ruts and they get very comfortable in those ruts. And uh, it's great that they're in a position of comfort, I suppose, uh, but they may not be providing the best care to the patients that they take care of if they're not staying current on uh, ideas and techniques and principles and approaches. So we'll go back to this conversation of stewardship. If I have a stewardship to take care of the person in front of me and I want to do that to the best of my ability, well, the best of my ability is a little better 
if I'm attending these types of events, if I'm keeping myself current on what's out there. So I think it's important to attend these types of presentations. I think it's important to revisit the literature on a given topic, primarily because it allows us to take the best care of the individuals that have entrusted us with that care. I think that's a great point because a lot of times there's an emphasis on encouraging younger clinicians or students to go to these meetings, but really all of us can be benefiting no matter how experienced we are because things are always changing and there's new data and there is new information that you can gain from these meetings. Absolutely. So earlier you mentioned starting off small with your presentations, but what advice would you give for someone who's given the opportunity to present at a stage that might be bigger than they think they're ready for? That is a, that is a great one. I was in that situation early in my career. We just, we had a very unique situation come through Houston and we managed that situation and, and the academy caught word of it. And the next thing you know, uh, as a resident, we've got an, a 90 minute organized session at the national meeting. Um, you say yes. For the most part, you want to say yes, and then you want to uh, grow into that opportunity. So you can say yes, and then you can do the things we've talked about. So you can say yes, you can be prepared, find the story and what it is you're trying to share, build out your presentation, practice that presentation, give it amongst your peers, give it among your coworkers, uh, and then allow yourself to grow into that presentation. But, you know, you're going to find that that's how we grow is, is by taking on these challenges that we don't think that we're ready for. And, and then we say yes anyway. But once you say yes, you go through the preparatory work, right? You don't want to say yes and then forget about it and show up and do a miserable job on a big stage. You want to say yes and go through the steps we've talked about today uh, so that it's ultimately a net positive experience. And since you brought up the younger practitioner, I, I want to take just a minute here and encourage any of those younger practitioners that might be listening to this podcast to volunteer. Don't underestimate the, uh, the, the power and influence of putting your name out there and expressing a willingness to contribute. There are opportunities to speak. There are opportunities to present, especially at the state and local chapter level. A lot of times they're very eager for speakers that will help them fill out an eight-hour program. Uh, so if you have something that you did as a, as a senior project or as a capstone project where you did a very thoughtful systematic literature review, that's great stuff. That's translational knowledge that your, your colleagues could really benefit from. So I would say don't hesitate to reach out to the academy, to the different societies, to the different chapters and volunteer, whether it's to uh, present or to moderate, they're usually pretty thrilled to get that information uh, and to know that they've got one more speaker willing to share in that setting. Well, Phil, I think you've given us a lot of great advice today. If, if I can summarize some of your main points here, I think it really is about saying yes to every opportunity, being prepared to tell a great story, and just really respecting and honoring the, any opportunity to be on stage and to share knowledge. Do you have any final words of advice for our listeners? Uh, yeah, I, I suppose my final bit of advice is to always keep track of just how lucky we are to do what we do every day, to help the people that we help every day. The, the populations we get to work with are, are so inspiring for us to work with every day. We're, we're so lucky to, to have this calling in our lives. Uh, and when we talk about presenting, you know, that's the beautiful thing. If you do that job well, if, if you put in the time, you invest the energy to do that job well, 
you're not only going to have a positive influence on the people in that audience, but recognize that each of those folks in the audience are going to go back to a clinical practice where they're going to impact dozens or maybe hundreds of patients with whatever insider knowledge you just passed along to them. So is it worth the effort? Is it worth the time? It absolutely is because of Mrs. Jones, because of Mrs. Smith, because of Mr. Brown, right? There are people and and they're beautiful, wonderful people that need our help. And uh, if if you keep those people uh, in mind, that can motivate you to take the time to walk the walk we've just outlined. It is time consuming, but it's worth it because of the beautiful people at the end of, uh, of the process. Well, thank you for that, Phil. Recognizing that this is an Academy podcast, do you have any upcoming Academy presentations that we should be aware of? Uh, I do, yeah. So the, the national meeting is coming up in March, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited. I, I get to give one of the train hearts. My colleague, Jeff Bachman, uh, is giving the other one. So, so Jeff is going to speak on a, a project that we've collaborated on uh, as far as the uh, the creation of the OPRO-M, the Orthotic Patient Reported Outcomes as Assessment of Mobility. So I'm excited to present alongside Jeff as he shares some of that collaborative work. Uh, and then my opportunity will be to speak to the integration of, a, of an outcome measure specific to upper limb prosthetics. So we have a measure that looks at uh, physical function among upper limb prosthesis users, and we're going to be presenting longitudinal data. So tracking the improvement in physical function that accompanies the receipt of an individual's first upper limb prosthesis. Uh, so those will be the two train hard presentations on the first day of our annual meeting. And yeah, we're excited for those and looking forward to those opportunities. Well, I will be at the upcoming Academy meeting, so I'm very excited to hear your presentation. And I just want to thank you again for joining us. You've given us a lot of great advice today. So thank you. Well, thank you for the time, Sierra. And thank you to everyone for listening to this episode of OMP Rising. Please join us each month as we continue our conversation with seasoned OMP professionals as they share candid insights on topics relevant to those interested in starting on the right foot when it comes to a career in OMP. We'd like to extend a special thank you to our episode sponsor, Autobot. For more information, visit their website at shop.autobach.us. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And don't forget to check out the Academy's other podcast for OMP professionals, the award-winning OMP Research Insights with Dr. Steve Gard and OMP Clinical Insiders with Academy Scientific Society's Chair, Seth O'Brien, a podcast created for conversations on specific areas of clinical care. For more information on the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists, visit us online at omp.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.